0: now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the easiest, fastest, and most secure way to swap your digital assets. Don't run the risk of leaving your funds on centralized exchange. Visit Shapeshift.io to get started today. And this episode is also sponsored by my patrons on Patreon. We got about forty, you got about seven hundred bucks a month, and so I like to give different examples each episode for why they support. And here's why German likes the show. He says, "If the nicest person in the world had to be assigned a voice, it would have to be Reese's." <laughs> cool. Um, and so today is my first live interview that I post on the podcast. It's with Ryan Martins, who's the co-founder and CTO of Rally Technologies, which sold for $480 million in 2015. And post-exit, Ryan's been working on building the emergent future, especially around climate change, with this thing called Impact Hub. So I ask him a bit about that, and we also spend a lot of the time with him asking me questions about how I see the emergent future. So I talk about ETH Commons and Game B and complex system dynamics and kind of uh, big system change. So with that, I uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. hello everybody <laughs> and welcome to another episode of creating a humanist blockchain future uh, where we take a systems thinking approach to doing good in the world and today this is a live podcast interview um, and today we have ryan martins here and uh ryan is the co-founder was the co-founder and cto of rally technologies um, which actually sold for uh $480 million, which is a lot of money uh, in 2015, um, and he's also very interested in the emergent future and is specifically working with um this communities for change initiative which we'll dive into in a bit so ryan thank you for being here
2: good race really excited to be here uh we'll talk a little bit about what brought me here but um it's neat to bring your community together with the one that we're working on here in the in in the boulder area yeah thanks good
1: yeah um and just as a note what we're going to do today is we're going to do uh, usually I just interview the person, but today we're going to do a little bit of cross-interviewing stuff where I'm going to start by interviewing Ryan about the work he's doing, and then we'll spend the most most time with him interviewing me about the work that I'm doing. Um, and then there'll also be time at the end for Q&A. So um, with that, let's dive into Ryan's stuff. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to get in interview mode. So Ryan, what is... Um, So you're leading this initiative, it's with the Impact Hub, it's with this Communities for Change thing, Um, and it's also using, I think let's start though with this Theory U thing. And so Theory U, could you tell us about what is Theory U?
2: Sure, absolutely. So it's a method uh, created for humans, uh, specifically a change method. And the, the thinking behind it was how would you create a method that would allow people to create the future that they want, not work from the past. So not increment from the past, but envision and feel what's emerging in the future and lead from the emerging future. That's one of the subtitles of what it is. Um, it's, we've tried a lot of ways to implement change. There's all kinds of change methods that come around in the world, whether you work from rationales or you work from where's the energy coming from uh, in the system. But this one's really different. It's created by the Presencing Institute. Uh, which is a group out of MIT led by Otto Scharmer, uh, which is tied to the systems thinking work that was done at MIT's Sloan School for years with Danella Meadows and others. Mm-hmm. And basically we're following a path of uh, following this shape of a U, as they describe it, of um, initially starting with sensing where where are we at right now, then trying to uh, presence and understand really what's what's actually emerging, then trying to work as a team to crystallize those things, and then we're going to prototype those. We'll actually move on and um, take the prototypes out of this process, iterate it on them more at the Impact Hub, and present them at Boulder Startup Week Um, with the specific goal in the case of our work uh, to work in the area of climate and climate impact and resiliency.
1: Cool. I like it. And a thing that I specifically like about this is that it you, when you're trying to determine this new future, a really good way to do so is to make sure that you're using the correct process to do so. And with this one, with the theory U, it has this very like blank slate feeling at the beginning, where you start with questions and you start with questioning, and you say, "Hey, what? Not how things are today, but rather what we, what is the future that we want to make?" And then pulling us towards that. Um, so I'm a big fan of that in mind.
2: Yeah, it's been really effective. I've worked in this area for probably 20 years with people from, that, uh, from MIT and systems thinking. I've seen many of the tools, but have never put it together as a complete process. Um, there's a lot of resources available online, either tied to Otto Scharmer, um, Theory U, the Presencing Institute, um, both books and PDFs, but there's also an edX course. Um, And that's really how the Impact Hub got involved in all this is that they ran giant MOOCs um, of classes out of MIT around this concept. And those things have a large drop-off rate. And at the end of the drop-off, a majority of the people that were left doing the course were at hubs all around the world. So the BMW Foundation sponsored this with the Impact Hubs to sponsor six cities across the world right now. And so we're going through this process together with Harare, Budapest, Shanghai. Shanghai, Baltimore, and Seattle, mm. all working on what they call a, a big umbrella of inclusive cities.
1: Got it. And that's what this Community for Change thing is. It's a multi-city thing where everybody's trying to make change within their city using this theory U system. And are all of them, I know that the one that you're involved with primarily in the one for today is around climate change, resiliency, are all of the current ones with that?
2: No, the broad umbrella of uh, inclusive cities uh, was the the context of it. Uh, We did some meetups that we shared Zoom calls with people all around the world and went into little breakout rooms. So I actually talked to the folks from Baltimore. Um, They're specifically working on the problem of redlining, which is, uh, if you don't know much about it, it's part of how we give loans in the United States and how we've created systemic racism and segregation by redlining communities and saying you could not get loans in those communities. So that left African-American families in an ability not to be able to buy homes and they had to rent and therefore not create equity. Yep. In their home, so that's what Baltimore is going at. They were actually the folks who started that process in the 1930s, mm-hmm. and the the team in Baltimore is fired up about trying to fix it.
1: So different people are working on different things, and then it's city by city, cool. And then for the one today, this is part of a what you call a learning journey. Exactly. Um, so tell me, so if theory, if theory U is the kind of underpinning framework for how the methodology for how you're trying to create good change in the world by pulling towards the future, what is how does a learning journey fit in with that?
2: So we're instructed to go out and uh, we were taught a number of techniques, especially around listening and trying to get down to a place where not only do you acknowledge the things that you're always listening for that confirm your biases, but those things that don't confirm your biases, as well as the emotional part of what's actually happening in you and uh, when you go on these journeys. And so we've, we're doing some work with B-Cycles, with, uh, with Echo Cycle, around how what composting and zero waste of the future looks like and this one's primarily around hey the enabling technology of blockchain and what is that causing what's that causing to emerge in the world how can we sense into what that is and how can we share that with the high school students that are in our class as well as the folks from uh the latino community as well as people who are chief sustainability officers
1: yep so a wide range of people and bringing them from kind of a blank slate perspective towards what this thing could look like. Okay, interesting. interesting. And I, I feel like uh, a learning journey um, is helpful, especially as as we did at the beginning with the kind of context that we're talking about, where it can be you kind of uh, that confirmation bias, that uh, that ability to say, hey, this is the way that things are and have been. The learning journey, in, in theory, pushes you outside of that.
2: Correct. Cool. Cool. Uh And mostly we were supposed to they. When they hear this podcast back, it'll be a chance for them to sense into what, what is it that they're hearing from all this? And what is it that, how does that feel like it's emerging? The goals were to first open your mind, then open your heart and then open your will Mm -hmm. to the change that's emerging. So those are things we've been trying to practice as a group. Uh, We've done a whole bunch. We have a set of facilitators at the Impact Hub in Boulder that are leading us through it, as well as then global faculty from the MIT campus that are broadcasting uh, weekly homeworks that we have to do. So it's been pretty intense. We're at week five or six right now. Week six of seven of eight. Of eight. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we take a week off for spring break next week and there's a few more learning journeys before we get through the end of this. Yeah. Hmm.
1: I think that's something that we're unlikely to talk too much about today or we might, but I want to insert it now is this ability to free to to
2: did you call it a free will or what do you call it? A- First was free your mind, free your mind exactly. then free your heart, free, then free, free, your free your will. Up, yeah. But you you've those are steps. Yes, that's yes, yes.
1: A- it's in that order. And, yes. and I think that there's a, that's something that's, I think, crucial with all of this is that it all starts with you. That yes. you have to, if you are not secure yourself, or if you have issues with your your ability to free your mind and to rationally listen to people, or if you have issues with, like, making commitments, thing you're not going to be able to do much, you know, so you kind of got to start with yourself. And then once you start with yourself, then you can address the world.
2: Absolutely. All the homework is directed at us individually. So first we work on ourselves and then we come together every week and work as a group, but only after we've done some work on ourselves. Yep. Self-work
1: for the win. Um, cool. That makes sense. Um, I don't think I have any other questions for context. Do you have anything else?
2: To no, I, we can pick some things up in Q and A too if I miss something. But I, I covered everything I wanted to cover. I think it gives you good context now from where I'm going to come to to interview you.
1: Yeah, exactly. Ooh, we're turning the tables. Okay.
2: So, uh, as I said, we're. This is oh of a wide variety of folks from all different backgrounds and different ages and experiences uh, that are trying to really understand what's the implication of this technology on the future. What can we sense into? So this notion of a humanistic future and, and actively creating it is one that certainly captures my ear, but I think everybody in the group, as we try to understand, you know, why is it every day that we wake up and by the end of the day, we've figured out how to Fluute the planet that we live in yep. we've figured out how to widen the equity gap yep. in what we 're doing with no intention of our own yep. right yep. that none of us yep. wake up wanting to do that but yep. what do we do every day right and so how is it that we could create a more humanistic or sustainable future and for you for you, how do you see this emerging
1: mm-hmm. yeah so well on, on the point that you just stated there that is this um, idea that we are all essentially individual actors within essentially an incentive set system and as a result of that incentive set system bad things can start to occur so that's where it's like oh we didn't try to make this but the system made it happen Um, and so what's emerging is um, essentially a way to exit our current system Um, through new, through essentially democratizing the incentive creation process. So if you imagine that we have a bunch of incentive creation processes that exist today, blockchain, and we can talk about more of this later, once we get more of the context, gives us um, a cheaper way to create new incentive systems that will allow us to hopefully exit our current system and create a new, better system uh, that is more equitable and sustainable and things like that.
2: I assume in addition to being cheaper, it's also maybe more, uh, accessible or user generated, as opposed to, uh, I need the the super user person with root access to the computer and and somebody at Google to go fix yeah. this for me. That's not what you're talking about.
1: No. Yeah. And 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 uh, yeah. That's what I generally mean by democratization is that it is either cheaper, easier, all those things. Hopefully, will make it so that more people can do incentive creation. Um, but I think it, it it is worth saying before we talk about that kind of the. This emergent future is based in the current present um, and our past, and so when we think about the past, um, let's start with the past and then go to the present and then talk a little bit about the future. So the past, we—if you look about at the next or the last two hundred years, the last two hundred years have been. There are these awesome six graphs that go across these different metrics, and you look at them, and it's like, oh my god, two hundred years ago things were worse. You know, 10% of people had basic education, 10% of people had the ability to, had like a a good ability to read, almost everybody was in extreme poverty, no one was vaccinated, half of kids died before the age of five, like just a big long list of sad things. And if you look at all of those metrics today, you're like, oh, well now 90% of people, they've all flipped essentially, 90% of people are out of extreme poverty. You know, almost everybody has a basic education, can read, almost everybody's vaccinated, most people are in democracies, almost no kids die before the age of five it's a better world than it was. For Um, humans. what's up? For humans. For humans, for humans, for humans. And (laughs) and clearly, yeah, the externality of all that was uh, that we have a, um, what's climate change, essentially. Um, But uh, the, so that is all to say that we are starting to enter this world where all of the metrics that we've been tracking, we're like, oh, we're starting to do well on them. And we're entering this world of abundance or being, having enough. Um, And so, Another way to think about this is from the macro view, we're starting to reach 100% on all of those um, metrics, but also at the micro view, like for me personally, um, I'm about to self-tax myself a couple thousand bucks because after you make um, about 4,000 bucks a month, you just stop getting happier when you get more money. So it's like, oh, I have enough. It's not gonna make me happier. I can make the world happier with this money. Um, So that is the first key piece here is that we exist in this strange world post-industrial revolution where a bunch of metrics have gone up into the right exponentially, and we're starting to um, get to the place where we have enough slash abundance.
2: I think of a lot of people when we talk about the industrial revolution and that cycle is we we're hugely focused on efficiency and a, uh, at the cost of maybe other metrics that might come to, your, to, your, uh, to you I, I, a couple come totally. to my mouth.
1: but And we were optimizing for some metrics and ignoring the other metrics. Correct. So, um, but for those metrics we were optimizing for, things have been okay.
2: <laughs> not, maybe not a very balanced scorecard, but, <laughs> we, but a highly optimized on efficiency. Yes, yeah. definitely.
1: Um, and so now, given our present state... Um, Now we're essentially about to, if the industrial revolution started, you know, it was like that last 200 years, the current revolution is this new digital internet revolution. And that one is one where um, we're essentially going to start experiencing massive, converging, exponential, accelerating technological change, Um, which is a lot of intense words all put together, but I think all of them are pretty much true. Um, And the reason for that is because we're about to have 4 billion people with smartphones in the world, um, and all those people with smartphones because of the way the internet works, we can, we'll can be able to learn a lot more quickly, we'll be able to then create value more quickly, and then distribute that value more quickly. If you make an app, it can go anywhere in the world. Um, and so that quick value creation engine is generally a good thing, um, because we will be creating more and more value, but that also means that we're creating these parallel parallel value across so many different sectors, whether it's biotech and CRISPR or AI and robotics or crypto and blockchain or AR and VR, all of these things are going to be happening and are happening in an intense way. And as all of those things happen, we need to make sure that essentially what we did for the industrial revolution, which was ignore our externalities and ignore climate change, and now we're like, we need to deal with that. Um, If we do that same thing, but also do it for all of these converging massive exponential trends, we are likely to self-terminate, is the way to think about it, because essentially the externalities that we're ignoring from all of those different things, we will be in a crazy system where everything is changing super rapidly, and we're ignoring the externalities, and then we have a sad state. So, this is to say... um, that past, of those past 200 years from the Industrial Revolution, plus the current state with the digital revolution and this upcoming uh, the value loops being much quicker and the massive converging exponential change, that means that we likely need to start thinking in this game B reality where, we have, uh, where we're starting to incorporate externalities, where we're starting to be omni-considerate, where we start to kind of change the way that we play the game
2: makes sense yeah sometimes when i talk to others about it it's the difference between efficiency and, and, and effectiveness right w- what we really need to be effective at a, is well-being a, is that happiness is a, those kinds of indicators as well as maybe biodiversity species creation instead of t- destruction and and overall water and, and air health right those are the things that keep our planet going yep. uh, that maybe be a, a bigger balanced scorecard for us well i think i think, I think that, that there's
1: the, the there's the climate perspective which is super strong and then there's also the other perspectives which are as we need to worry about the climate one we also should be worried about like artificial intelligence risk and we should probably be worried about nuclear security risk and biosecurity risk so there's like there's a bunch of things like that where it's like yeah the scorecard needs to be very balanced so
2: i i feel angst i'm not sure quite sure i feel i feel like i you've made me feel any better okay totally uh, with all of the the convergence of all those technologies at once. And I remember uh, uh, the guys from Sun talking, um, Bill Joy, talking about really trying to regulate nanotechnology, right? It was, again, not knowing how that technology was going to deploy itself. Um, uh, We haven't really had any big issues associated with it yet, but now you can combine these things with a couple other things, and uh, I can create some worst-case scenarios. When I think about transitioning, I always think about letting go, and then the, the 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 phase of transitioning and the one of starting anew. That's typically how it does. Do those words cause you to think of anything? What are we going to be letting go of? Yeah. So,
1: well, so yeah. There's a couple pieces there. I think that that when I hear letting go, um, transitioning, and starting anew, that also maps onto. A, another system perspective where you think about the, tr- the kind of protective things we need to do within game A, um, and that's kind of a little bit with the letting go piece. That's the transitionary work that we need to do from game A to game B, and then finally the starting a new piece, which is the post-transitionary work within game B. So that's kind of how I map it into. Um, the things that I think we need to let go of our, the, I mean, the biggest one for me, honestly, and the one that I think is the key leverage point here is this accumulation mindset. Um, and that's the one that I am actively trying to push with this. Hey, we have enough. We, have, um, we live in a world of abundance. You, know, you don't even get happier. You know? it's like, Why are you doing it? Well, because we've been taught in various ways. Um, so I think that if we are able to create that world of non-accumulation then that creates non-scarcity mindsets then that creates win-win situations and that starts to lead to more kind of access economy sharing economy style things um where people are starting to play more win-win games instead of win-lose games
2: yeah Um, i know i was as you know i was well involved with the pledge one percent concept and there's a lot of people who have talked about this notion of the programming that we have in our heads of we spend our 20s and 30s earning uh, learning we spend our 30s and 40s earning yeah. and we spend our 60s and 70s and 80s returning yeah. and really pledge one percent was directly aiming at that thing that says why do you wait yeah. what 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 is it that you're waiting till your 60s to to do why there's no reason not to give 1% of your company when you're a new entrepreneur to set it aside to the community that helped you get it going exactly and And you can start giving day one
1: yes And, and this is actually a key point and it is a um so one way to think about what we're trying to do is we're trying to play what we call an infinite game and that's a game that you play just for the sake of playing rather than to win at the end because remember if we try to win then that's a win-lose dynamic and the lose is a big lose and then so it's a lose-lose dynamic. Um, and so this infinite game, if you're trying to play that infinite game, you've got to start at the beginning. And so for me... That's been kind of weird, like I currently have about $20,000 to my name, and I'm about to self-tax myself about $4,000, $5,000 of that, and a lot of people would go, you're stupid, you know, and for me personally, I have been raised in a, like I've been saving my money for a ton of my life, or I've been, I've had the saver mindset, Um, and I actually had this realization recently where I was like, oh man, does this non-accumulation mindset mean that I shouldn't save for retirement? And it's kind of, is true, and it's kind of a, a reality in which if you, like, when you imagine two realities, if I'm 65, and that's 40 years from now, A, what's the world going to look like? And it's <laughs> super different um, if we take all this stuff to be true. And so, if I save, then I will have been creating this bad accumulation mindset, and everybody else would have had and are like, oh man, and then we're in this sad reality. But if I, and, and it's like, it's like, if I... I'm trying to remember exactly what it is, but like, there's, it's kind of like a thing where it's like you have to choose. Um, it seems dumb to do it, but if you... Uh, I guess here's a way to think about it. If capital is, is no longer scarce, that's a transition that's occurring right now, that's a world of abundance, then if you saved you have something that no one cares about. Um, And so that is kind of the mindset I'm trying to be in. Well,
2: and there's people that are clearly demonstrating that with uh, other pledges that are giving away their billions and trying to Use it now, as opposed to setting up big uh, private fu- foundations that dribble out five percent of the earned capital every yep. year, and they go on for generations and generations. It seems like now's the time to use now's that. The exactly. Now's the time, exactly. Yep. So I, I, I know from looking at your background that you grew up here in Denver. You, you taught you got a computer science degree. You've taught English in India and and Santa Fe. You were CTO and engineer of a 2014 TechStars company in the space associated with uh, with music and technology. You're one of the co-founders of, ETH, of the Denver ETH community. Yep, uh, including I'm not
1: actually a co-founder. Oh, by a co-organizer. There, yeah. an
2: organizer, <laughs> at least for the hackathon yeah, that was exactly. a week ago. Yes, um, yeah. And four months ago, you became the co-steward of a thing called ETH Commons, uh, which, as you quote on one of your sites, is an organization that's co-evolving the phase ship to crypto capitalism and a blockchain future, yeah. also known as Game B. Mm-hmm. From the talks I know, and from a little bit you've told me about Game B, which you might need to, to define, it seems very, a very altruistic path. Mm-hmm. How did you get from that beginning to here? Mm-hmm. where How'd you get onto that? So where's the, I, the where's the you know like the the founding moment? Where...
1: The, I think the crucial I think I thing is that for me personally, I've always been kind of hyper optimized. For um, I'm both very intentional. I'm very I love operating at the kind of abstracted meta level yep. and scale level, um, and uh, and I'm very curious. So as a result of those things, it's like so when I I was feeling. It was, like, it was honestly kind of like some post-Trump stuff um, where I was like, okay, this is happening and the world in various ways is doing crazy things. I don't think that I can work on my music education startup anymore because we don't have enough time. Um, so I left uh, with the desire to find what was next. And there's a very good system called effective altruism, which allows you to essentially prioritize how to do the most good in the world. Um, and they use this neglectedness impact tractability framework where they say, hey, if you're thinking about a problem, how neglected is it? If a bunch of people are working on it, you, you might not need to. Um, the second one is impact. If it's, if it's only going to affect like 10 people, it might not be that impactful. Um, and then tractability is like solvability. So if you just put some effort to it, can stuff actually happen? Um, so using that kind of framework and mindset, they have this cause selection
2: sheet. Um,
1: um, and, and this and is on the internet. This oh, is on the internet. It's yeah. called,
2: again, what was it, just to help? Effective,
1: Effective altruism. And, and then the cause selection sheet, if you go to 80,000 hours, you'll be able to find a bunch of good material there. Okay. Um, and the key thing for me was actually what I'm doing, which is kind of this like complex system dynamics, kind of um, positively shaping crypto asset stuff that's not actually very high up on their cause selection list um but if you look at a bunch of their problems um a lot of their problems if you think about the the h- why those problems exist like um nuclear security biosecurity um climate change ai risk all of those are bad game theory problems um and so if you solve bad game theory problems then you can solve all of those and so why try to solve one when you can solve all so that's
2: essentially uh, nice answer mm-hmm. yeah let's see i haven't heard you say that before yeah. Um, uh, can you make some of this real for us and make it a little bit more concrete? I I don't think we need to get into what is blockchain and though you can, obviously there's some constructs that are are maybe helpful to explain a little bit of, but what's emerging first from this space? What will we all know about maybe that, that would allow people to make it feel a little bit more concrete
1: yeah well i think um we're gonna we're gonna stay at one level of abstraction higher first and then we'll talk about some concrete stuff i think that the the one level of abstraction higher thing is this when we think about this new future that we're trying to create um and some of you talked about this earlier which was this idea of creating these new values for the future so we're in this if When you conceptualize of the world, you should think of everything as a system. And when you're thinking things as systems, the main system that we exist in is what I call the tech society loop. So that's technology informs our reality and society. And then society, based off of that, then informs the technology we build. And so with that mindset, um, if you think about um, all the technology that's happening, we're saying, okay, we need to change. It's changing society, and then society we need to start changing our values, our ideology, our art that we're making, our, those kinds of like ideas in order to then make sure that we change the technology as it goes forward. And so um, when we change that society, so that's, that's one thing that I do in the space that we need to do is this, Essentially, you can call it like game B evangelism, you could call it spreading this these ideas. It's, it's trying to change the ideology. and, and The mindset. The, the mindset, exactly. Yep. The mindset. And, and that mindset is also... When you think about what we're trying to exit, um, a good way to think about what we're in now is like late-stage capitalism. And there's even a really good subreddit on it, um, which is pretty funny. And um, uh, capitalism, when Karl Marx talks about capitalism, he talks about his primary loop, which is... What he calls the base and superstructure, and it's very synonymous with tech and society, where you have the base, which is kind of essentially the tech side, where it's capital, it's labor, it's the humans, it's factories, um, and then the superstructure. He says is you know the values, the ideology, the mindset, and they kind of are reinforcing each other. And for him, it's like that was a big reason why capitalism is so hard to break, because you have this reinforcing loop between the base and superstructure. So this is all to say that as we're building this game B future. We need to tell the correct stories about it. We need to create this best. Um, we need to talk about the superstructure um, and, AKA, the society side of the tech society loop. So that's one piece that I think is important. And then the other piece, and why kind of blockchain comes in, is uh, we need to build the new kind of infrastructure. Um, and so, Vinay Gupta has this really good. Vinay Gupta is a um, Ethereum like co-founder and is a very good systems thinker. And he talks about um how especially Ethereum, but just generally smart contract platforms, are really good at building what he calls meta structures. And so um if you think about this new feature that we're trying to build, you can think about how we exist today, and how we exist today. There's a ton of uh, what you could call like neoliberal capitalist in- infrastructure um, which is uh, there 's a bunch have
2: to of- get concrete there essentially there 's a bunch of infrastructure
1: around both like roads and electricity there 's a bunch of infrastructure around like institutions like nation state governments um, banks academic institutions, whatever right. these things are part of our um, the old world that got us where we are and We need to, as we make this new future, we need to create new infrastructure for this new future. And when we think about creating this new infrastructure, a traditional problem that we've had is trying to create new infrastructure using the old system. Because you're like, hey, we'd like to exit this old system and build this new stuff. And you're like, oh, but how do we even fund the new stuff? Because the new stuff is operating in totally different paradigms than the old stuff. And so that's why blockchain is actually good is because you can – because, A, at its root, it's money and it's trust. And so as we're losing trust in all these existing institutions, we can kind of create trust within the blockchain system. Um, and that – and people will be excited by it. We'll start funding that. Um, and – okay.
2: So you lose me a little bit sorry, there sorry. and maybe <laughs> – and, and, and there's the blockchain space and there's the cryptocurrency space. You mm-hmm. seem to be using them interchangeably, and yet I don't see them interchangeably because I think of the blockchain and the Ethereum open source stack that's used to create a lot of this stuff yep. as a smart contracting, fully transparent, distributed infrastructure. Yep. It so happens that I think the first implementation of it that that everybody's at least heard of, and even if it's their uncle at Thanksgiving dinner, start talking about Bitcoin, um, that It's an instance of using that technology. They're not one and the same. Or do you see them the same?
1: I think that they, yeah, you could definitely claim that they are not one and the same. That blockchain, especially when people use distributed ledger technology, that generally means things that don't have cryptocurrencies attached to them and instead are just transparent, um, like interoperable database kind of things. Um, However, I do think uh the cryptocurrency piece so if you imagine um the blockchain is a series of transactions it's from reese to ryan then from ryan to reese and those get um put on this ledger and then uh, that series of transactions on that ledger one of those goes onto a block and then a bunch of those blocks together is the blockchain yes. so it's like a long toilet paper roll um if you imagine that then the question is, what is on those transactions? And generally speaking, those transactions will be a cryptocurrency. Um, so that's how they kind of interrelate. Um, so that's why I kind of mash them into one. understand. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, so, so people we, do really talk about them. They can't yeah, really separate sorry. them. They,
1: I think that they are more together than they are separate.
2: Okay. <laughs> um, so we've we got now into the part of, I think you'd agree that cryptocurrency, since they're more together than they are apart, it is the first concrete example of using this distributed ledger technology uh, uh, to make a new set of currencies, of which there are thousands uh, thousands Mm -hmm. of, yeah, 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 seem to be. I think like 1,500 right now. Okay. Mm -hmm.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shapeshift.io, the world's leading trustless digital asset exchange. Quickly swap between dozens of cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, Ether, Dash, Bitcoin Cash, Augur, Golem, and many more. And this is not your typical crypto exchange. You don't need to create an account or share your personal information, and your funds are never stored on Shapeshift. This means that your hard earned digital wealth is never up for grabs by hackers or other malicious actors. To get started, visit shapeshift.io, choose the tokens you'd like to swap, input your receiving address, and send your funds. It's that easy.
2: Yeah. Where do you see it going in other areas? Specifically, when we start thinking about um, sustainability or humanistic systems, the, those things aren't getting a lot of visibility yeah. when we talk about the, you know, we start reporting on the variable price of bitcoins and how much it goes up and down every day yeah. as it's trying to, I guess, fund your game B. But maybe that's a different <laughs> yeah. question. Um
1: we hope that, hope that, that all Bitcoin, Bitcoin was meant for that, that purpose. purpose. <laughs> <I'm not>.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so but I got distracted. But back to the sustainability totally, and humanistic yeah. places. What are some of the concrete examples that you see emerging in those areas? Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, so I think, I
1: think that um, within those areas. So specifically thinking about something like sustainability, yes. you have. Um, in general, there are kind of two big areas, and so if you imagine the the blockchain in it is that it's a very transparent thing, um, and that people can look at it, um, and it is, not, it is not owned by one entity, so it doesn't exist in a silo, kind of like Facebook's data exists in a big silo, sure. um, and so one thing that it's very good at is supply chains, so that's a place where... You can start mapping out an entire supply chain, and if you map out an entire supply chain on the blockchain, then you can start to determine things about it and you can say, "Hey, um, if we look at the supply chain you can it's easier than to say, hey, there's this thing called slave free trade which says hey we're how many slaves or which slaves or hopefully zero slaves were used to um, produce this good um, and then you can also do a similar thing but with like kind of carbon tracking so you can say, hey, we're producing this thing." Um, you know, for example, the World Wildlife Fund has this tuna pilot that they're doing right now where they're tracking tuna from bait to plate. Um, and they're showing with that that you have these little um, RFID tags on the fish somehow. Um, and they track uh, that tuna throughout the supply chain, Say. Where did it come from? Was it fished illegally? Was it fished you know, legally? How much carbon was used as it you know, was transported? So that's um, some of these example things that people are trying to do within the blockchain space are supply chain transparency pieces.
2: Yeah, I, I, that reminds me of what Patagonia has been going through for the last 20 years is it's tried to trace its supply chain, find where it's got or, organic or non-organic cottons and then be able to monitor that supply chain continuously and not it hasn't been an easy process process for them yeah. uh, especially when you're talking about recycled pop bottles or all kinds of things that's that they source to make their products um, so this becomes then a way to do that more efficiently effectively yeah. so, but maybe with a lot more visibility for all as opposed to just, it just hidden to them yeah, totally, totally.
1: Yeah, and I, I think, think that, that the initial is. a lot of the initial stuff is just pure hey we are IBM and we want to and we work with a lot of companies on their supply chains and we're just going to help them be more efficient, and that'll be good in various ways. But then there's also the transparency piece, which will hopefully be good, good for. So um, is that may be
2: part, part of the part of the transition piece. Is this technology gets picked up for its efficiency yeah, uh, uh, capacities first, yeah. but it plants a, an infrastructure seed that can be grown and harvested later in the form of. How much carbon is it? How far did that thing travel from? Who actually caught it? Yeah. Um, who who built it? Yeah. Uh, how do I get it fixed? fixed. Yep,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. And that might not be stage one, but it, is, it, it should be it. The infrastructure hopefully will be there. Yeah. Um, and then the other piece, uh, which you've talked about a bit, is the uh, the carbon side of things where you imagine, you can essentially imagine tokenizing carbon um, and right now the kind of carbon offset ecosystem. And so another thing that, you know, blockchain is good at is interoperability um, because it's designed to be in between things rather than, you know, in silos or whatever. And so um, with kind of the interoperability piece, you also often get lower transaction costs for trying to then exchange these kind of carbon tokens. So hopefully you're able to A, um, understand it better, Uh, understand the supply chain better. And then once you do that, you carbon, you tokenize it. And then once you have it tokenized, then those things get exchanged more easily as well. Um, So that's an example of that is there's a group um, led by this thing called CarbonX, uh, which is, and there's like 32 people in this blockchain um, carbon uh, coalition that are looking at tokenizing carbon in various ways. I think there's a big pilot in China happening right now with it.
2: Um, maybe that last piece that's helpful for people to understand, as you said, it's a interop, interoperability piece, and that is the, the notion of these smart contracts are mostly to be dealt with by computers, yeah. not with by people. Yeah. We're not going to sit at terminals and types. We're going to type some word document and send it to the blockchain, and it's become a smart contract because we sent it to the blockchain.
1: Yeah, it's, it's often computer-based. It's computers talking to computers. That is that is one of the big things is machine-to-machine machine, um, talking. Yep.
2: And the smart contract thing is this notion of automating a, a supply chain. And one of the other pieces that I've heard that why it makes it so efficient is, hey, I can code up a contract that then might actually – if think of buying music from somebody that might actually at the point at which somebody decides to listen to a certain song on top of Spotify, it then sends and distributes the payments to everybody at that point in time, as opposed to having a a long delay cycle or any other accounting system. So this has huge implications on uh, accounting Accounting white collar -collar work. Yes, yes, Yes,
1: Yes, it does. does. Uh, Uh, And that is that is one of the things that we need to be wary of is as, uh, if, you, if you think about it in a loose form, as automation and AI automates a bunch of blue-collar jobs that leads to a lot of job loss, that leads to a lot of political unrest. And then if you imagine blockchain doing a similar thing with white-collar jobs, and those two things kind of converging at a similar time, that could be an issue. And so that's what they call um, cr- a creative destruction externality, which is the idea that, when you create this new system, when we're creating, for trying to transition over to game B in this new bottom up world, and you have these trusted centralized institutions that have lots of power, like governments and banks and nation states and whatever that is going to be, uh, they're going to be uh, creating a new system. You got to make sure that you do it as smoothly as possible. Um, so yes, we should be when you think
2: of scaffolding is, our yeah. way into this system, right? If you, you, we could have an, uh, maybe like Kevin Kelly talks about all technology is at least 51% good, mm-hmm. right? But if we can scaffold our way into the, into the answer of the good, the benevolent side, as opposed to the oppressive side of yep. things, when you think about scaffolding your way there, it's funny listening to some of your podcasts and, and especially the one about the Denver hackathon that was just last month. The the community is highly diverse, highly inclusive, altruistic in its behavior. Yeah. Why is that emerging? And is that intentional in scaffolding yeah. and who's doing that? Yeah. So it's, is this all just done by a, a bunch of folks who are not worrying about the retirement? Is, is it yeah, the next so generation only or yeah, what's happening so here?
1: So it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. So, um, the easiest way to think about this, so if we think back to that tech society loop and on the society side, these new values, this new ideology, yep. one thing that a lot of people want is like, oh man, I just want hope for the future. You know? And then you look at the current status quo and you're like, oh my god. Um, <laughs> and that and you know, trust in all of our institutions and all of our, in theory, trusted institutions are going down a bunch. Um, and so when people look at that world, they're like, man, I want a new future, but I can't find it here. Where can I find it? Oh, here. and then you, they look at crypto and they're like, whoa. These people have this vision of the future that I can actually buy into. Um, and so you get a bunch of people who are essentially solving that same job to be done, this essentially this goal where it's like, oh man, I want hope, I can't get hope over here. Oh, I can get hope over here, which is why crypto, both for its, its monetary reasons, it's spread like virally through humanity, right. but also for its hope reasons, it's spread virally through humanity.
2: So do you credit that to, the, to whom? Or to what, or to what actions, what, what behaviors caused that to, to, to be hope? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think that there's a, well, part of it is you have a bunch of people
1: who it's kind of this reinforcing loop between when you have abundance and you have enough then you can essentially start to do long-term thinking. Um, and that long-term thinking allows you then to work on these more kind of macro-systemic problems. And so I think, I think that, that... More that altruistic problems. Altruistic problems, altruistic problems. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. So, so, um, so you have... I think that is, um, and by the way, that's a great, when people talk about universal basic income, they're like, oh man, it's just going to make everybody lazy. There's this really big study happening with Directly, a 26,000 person study, randomized control trial, where they are um, giving a bunch of UBI across two or 10 year time periods with these people and their initial qualitative data from it when you look at it, it's just like everybody's long-term thinking now. And so it's like, yes, this is so good. Um, So uh, back to your original question, though, I think that there is, so you have those people who essentially have all their other basic needs met. um, And then once they have their basic needs met, especially once the crypto price goes up, they definitely have their basic needs met. um, And then they think, okay, well, how do I achieve meaning in the world? Um, Where is that job to be done? How do I do that? And they're like, well... I got this one on Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. I got this one. Well, let's go up to self-actualization. Let's make that happen, you know? And so that involves then this kind of turning humanity into a better thing. Um, I think that's... So I think that those kinds of... I think the, the, I think that the job to be done of hope plus the abundance mindset and that allowing people to go higher up on Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs kind of created um, this new crypto world that is more for good. Yeah, Yeah. I
2: I wonder, and I don't know, as I've taught you a little bit before, I've been on the search for how you create, as I've described, citizen engineers. A, A buddy of mine, Dave Douglas, wrote the book, Called Citizen Engineers and uh, open source is a primary component in it because it it produced a lot for the commons yep. as well as allowed it to get used a lot in the in the industrial section. But when I l- spent a lot of time working on that with uh, and researching and talking to engineers all over the place, including professors at the at the university here at Colorado, the the thing I got stuck on was empathy. Mm-hmm and that was the notion that it's hard to think in the long term and it's hard to think altruistically if if your empathy bubble is not very big in time or space yep. and that comes from living in an insular life in a one where you're trapped in a in a loop like poverty or trapped in a an echo chamber with only the people i, I wonder if there's an empathy component in here and i this is me just listening to the podcasts of eth denver uh, the hackathon and saying it was an amazingly inclusive and a diverse group there and and there was a lot of like creative collisions. Were they intentional? Um. <laughs>
1: So also well, two points. One is uh, on the point of empathy, if you look at that cause selection sheet that I talked about before, if you think about the other problems there are things like global health, um, global poverty, uh, and then animal, um, there's, you know, there's tens of, yeah, there's actually um, factory farming. There's tens of billions of animals killed in bad ways every year. And so depending on how you weight those, that can go higher up. Um, and so if those are all empathy problems um, where people don't, they're like, They don't have the abstract empathy to think about the cow or to think about the poor person in another part part of the world. So that is another big problem that we need to solve in addition to the game theory problems is a world in which our, and especially where we have the ability to do so with stuff like social media, right now it's being used for the reverse reason, unfortunately, because that isn't aligned with their business models. But hopefully in the future we will be able to align these social media business models more with empathy. Um, Yes, that was the first point. And then on your second point of how ETH Denver did it specifically, I mean, not, we were very intentional with our pushing for diversity. um, And then we were also pretty intentional with just, creating spaces where people could do bottom-up stuff themselves so we just like um for example there was this art weird art thing that happened where there were people on the roof that were doing this art thing and um they were doing their art where they're connecting it to the blockchain in various ways and i had a friend who works at another um, blockchain company who's this guy brady and i knew he was a music dude and i was like dude brady you should do this thing or whatever right. i had no idea what he was going to do he brought a ton of equipment he started doing this crazy looping vr stuff up there like I had no, like I, I didn't do any of that, but if you create a safe space for people to do it, yes. then they will, uh, express themselves in the way that they are authentically themselves. So I think that was beautiful. <laughs>
2: um, well, I, given where we're out on time, I, I know we want to take a couple of questions from people in the audience. I, I want to say, thank you. I really appreciate everything you're doing locally and obviously nationally and, uh, and maybe internationally for the world and trying to com- create game B and living that way yourself right now. Uh, uh, it was really helpful for us to be able to share that with the group as we're trying to imagine what, how to solve. Uh, one of those empathetic problems associated with climate change and realize that it is a problem closely nestled to a lot of other problems in a very complex system that when you start playing around with it, things move on you. Yeah. So super helpful. Um, I know you had a couple other questions that you wanted to ask before. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I think,
1: uh, I think that what you're, well, I guess two things. One is, um, and we'll do even a little quiz with the crowd right now, Guess how, so I've been a vegetarian for 10 years, okay, for the reason of climate change, because I was like, I read the book Eating Animals, and I read about the climate change, I was like, oh my god, I should be a vegetarian, so I've been a vegetarian, or a reducitarian for 10 years. Guess how many dollars you could pay um, to an organization in order to, uh, in order to offset those, uh, the carbon costs?
2: Of uh-huh. eating meat? Or of of eating meat. meat. Okay, yeah, so if, meat. You were, if you weren't a vegetarian but you were a, you were a carnivore, and you said I wanted to have the same, same carbon footprint as a person who, is, who was a vegetarian, yeah, yeah. What, would my, what would my rec cost be like uh, for yeah, a, for flight, a flight, flight that I took? Exactly,
1: exactly. So who thinks it's between one and ten dollars? Who thinks it's between ten and one hundred dollars? Who thinks between a hundred and 1000 This is for a year or for how
2: long? This is this for a year. For, this year. for a year. A year. A year. A year. A year. A year. I
1: think
0: you so. said
1: a day. Oh, sorry. No, a year, a year. Uh, Who thinks it's between $1,000 and $10,000? Okay, sweet. So it's $1.34. really? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, which is crazy. And that's why this effective altruist perspective is very helpful because they have a... Um, they've essentially looked at a bunch of different carbon offsetting things, and there's this one called Cool Earth, which is a... Um, which is 25x more effective um, because it works with land use and giving farmers the ability to use their land for other reasons rather than clear-cutting the land. And so it's $1.34. <laughs> and I learned that, and I was just like, I could have paid $10. Bucks. Like, <laughs> that is so sad. Uh, I hear people in the crowd being uh, amazed by that. But <laughs> we, can, we can look at it later. So
2: wow, that <laughs> seems...
1: It's Surpri- very surprising. It's surprising. It's surprising. It's surprising. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that, the, that was the reason why I thought of that is because it's in this piece of when you start to do self-imposed income taxes, one of the things that, I'm, that you try to do is essentially internalize all your externalities. And so um, a way that you do that, a simple way to do that within the climate change world is to say, okay – if I eat meat, I'm going to pay a dollar thirty-four a year. How many flights do I take? It's about a dollar a flight, essentially, to carbon offset it. Okay, so I'm going to offset all those flights, and um, so you can essentially add up, and it's usually you know forty bucks or whatever a year to, to do that work. To get
2: yourself to as the the zero impact man book yeah. uh, from the guy who tried to do it in New York City tells the story of getting himself to close to carbon zero, you could do it for forty bucks a year. Yep, yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: Um, So, that is uh, a fun little tip. Um, And then, uh, the other thing that this is related to from the talking about um, uh, a final key piece here and just a thing for the listeners at home or whatever is the way in which um, I'm kind of... So, if you think about... So, someone like Gandhi (laughs) said, uh, be the change you want to see in the world. And I'm trying to do that with respect to game B. Um, And the way that I'm doing that is essentially by having a, so so the things that you want are A, um, I'm trying to exist purely in the commons. And what that means is that I don't exist within a given company, so I don't exist within a given silo, but rather I exist within the commons and have a bunch of different people kind of pay me. So I am peer funded by both a lot of people and a lot of companies. in order to be in the commons and then another key thing that we're trying to transition to is this the abundant mindset the we have enough mindset and so that is another thing here where i exist i essentially make my money through patreon which is kind of like kickstarter but for subscriptions where you give people a certain amount of dollars per month to do their thing it's usually used for like musicians or whatever um and i'm through patreon and then this version of patreon called stake tree which is an ethereum based patreon essentially um and With both of those, the people who are paying me, who are supporting me, are supporting me because they have that abundant mindset. So I'm essentially telling people, look, not only do I have the abundant mindset and I have my own self-imposed income taxes, but you should do this yourself as well and you should support the comments and you have enough and you have all these things. And so it's trying to create essentially this... A virally propagating bottom-up peer-to-peer funding system uh, that is uh, that accounts for the commons. That's what I'm trying to do.
2: Um, so that's, that's creating the future today. That's, that's yeah, a, yeah.
1: That's me trying, trying to live the future today. Yeah. Um, so if you want to support me on Patreon <laughs> or StakeTree, you can go to staketreecom um and uh, and support. Um, so I think that's another kind of crucial piece here.
2: Yeah. Maybe.
1: Cool. Should we open up for Q and A? Absolutely. Um, okay. Who? Do, do, do. Let's. And you. You can talk into this if you want to. Honestly.
2: <laughs> okay.
1: Uh, on your back to your forty dollars a year yep. to offset your entire. I, I'm completely confounded by that because mm-hmm. obviously those costs, those prices, don't begin to reflect true uh, incorporation of externalities. Mm-hmm. If, if so I'm I'm a bit confused. A dollar to offset a flight is you know the the fundamental human foible in in human contribution to climate change is that we have so mispriced fossil fuel consumption for their true costs. So could you explain how that works, please? Yeah. So I'll first state that um, I think that's a good question. Also, you're the sustainability director of the school, so you might. Use, there's a good, ch- or not a non-zero chance that you know more than I do. Um, <laughs> so here's here's the numbers that I know. If you through this thing Cool Earth, and I can send you the link afterwards. There's it's a very long article looking at when you pay money to Cool Earth, which is a nonprofit. Um, how and then from the money that you pay them how much rain how much forest essentially rainforest do they protect per dollar and then how much of that per dollar cost and how much rainforest then accounts for a essentially a carbon offset so um or one metric one carbon ton equivalent um and so that is so the numbers that i know are it's a dollar thirty four for one metric ton of carbon uh, carbon co2e co2 equivalent that's the number that I know. I also know it's 25x better than the next, next best, best one. Um, um, that's where so the big
2: thing is that's that's Because most of us, when we think about Rex, if you looked like on the United page or the Delta page, and you looked at offsetting a flight, it would be in the neighborhood of about 20 bucks. Yeah, exactly. But what you're saying is this cool earth group yep. who's paying farmers to... To use the rainforest land
1: a different way a
2: different way so that it doesn't get plowed up is 25 more times effective than most carbon offsetting things so that may be where we're where we're getting a little Often that in that math, yeah, yeah, I think
1: it's I think it's that, and I think the other thing that a lot of people have the wrong mindset around is or the the wrong data around is. For me personally, I had this too, which is that I didn't think that one essentially it's like one like um, transatlantic flight is equal to a year of vegetarianism, you know. And I was like, oh man, you know, like um, so when I when the, so so learning and you could say oh man either way but um, so I think that's the other crucial thing is ordering of magnitudes the different kinds of ways that people try to carbon offset um, yeah does that yes. h- answer your question? Okay sweet um, are there other questions? Corey yeah um, Reese how do, you, how do you deal with so like you've been vegetarian for 10 years you are a you are a vehement but not actually vehement uh, effective altruist like And you're around, uh, you know, people who aren't vegetarian and you're eating, you know, you're watching other people eat what they eat and you know what impact it has and and you know also what impact they could have if they took one or 10% of their income and and did all these things. How do you like, how how do you calm your soul from not getting so cynical and jaded and like, uh, and want to outlash being in that environment? that is a good question, one that I get a lot as well, which is when you are a person, because it's, it's from a pure like game theory perspective, I'm essentially decentralizing power away for me. I'm reducing my own happiness to some extent. I'm doing these things, and the rest of the world isn't. You know, It's yeah. like, oh man, that's, that's sad. Um, and don't I get angry at them or whatever. Um, I think that for me, it's the i 'm not really an angry person, um, and i it 's a kind of a curiosity piece I think is honestly what it is is and so for example, when everybody when Trump was um, on his rise in two thousand and sixteen a bunch of people were essentially demonizing the right, um, a bunch of people on my Facebook and what have you and I was like wait a second people these people are people too and they were just they grew up in some context and they've had a bunch of random stuff and like we shouldn't be hating on them like this you know like maybe we should and so I actually tried I reached out to a bunch of various random Trump supporters and started to try to have conversations with them um and it generally failed in various ways but (laughs) (laughs) um and I think that um so there is but there's this intense um I think for me personally it is is this understanding. I think the other piece is, so if you think about from the, from the Trump perspective, um, there's this really great piece in The New Yorker about this lady in the Westboro Baptist Church who was, um, which is a really intense, they go to, they picket funerals, or like, you know, funerals there, they kill the Jews, all these kinds of things. It's a very small community, um, very kind of culty, and this lady was in it, and um, and she was all angry against the world and was mean to various people. And then, um, but over the course of time, over the course of like a couple years, this very patient rabbi and this very patient person that she played words with friends with, they were just very patient with her and asked her questions, very curious. And over time, she actually cut all of the ties that she ever knew and left the church. Um, and that is like... The most extreme example of this, um, and it's just like it was "quote unquote" solved by like lots of patience and time. And so um, there was this lady who was in a context, and she was operating within that context. For me personally, I know that like in high school, I used to I used to say like, "Oh, that's gay," and like things like that a bunch. And so. I was just operating in a context, you know, and so for me also knowing that I was operating in that context and had various incentive sets and social incentive sets and those kinds of things makes me that when I think about today and I think about all the other people in the world who are both on the don't agree with me politically spectrum and all the people in the world who aren't doing the things that I'm doing, I just think, hey, you've had a totally different life than I have had, and um, I wanna be curious about that, and then eventually, hopefully, I'll, I'll be patient with you, and maybe you'll see what I see, or maybe I'm being wrong, you know? Um, so I, I think that's the, uh, how I do it curiosity plus understanding context. Cool. Any other questions? Thank you for the conversation. Um, Reese, you mentioned that one of the issues with creating these new infrastructures and technologies that are uh, more next level systems, game B, is that that we're creating them from a a game A place. So my question to you is, what does creating from a game B place look like? What do do we need to embody? Is your question about um, uh, how we create game B systems with game A funding, or is is that your question? I guess it's it's how do we create it from like what are the values like if you look at the system take a systems thinking point of view and you look at the um, iceberg model yeah. the systems that we create come from the mindsets and the mental models so what are the most like what do we need to embody in terms of the mental models and the underlying values and beliefs that we have in order to then create.
2: The game systems. I'll answer part of yeah. that because it's a tie into the to your other question, and but it, maybe it's also a lead into to what where you're going to go, and that was. Um, so that's real specific to what we've been doing in theory. U right as. Uh, there's a model in Theory U that has at the top an iceberg. Iceberg is the symptoms, the problems that we see in the world today. The level below that is a, uh, is a set of um, patterns of behavior that happen. There's structures that create those patterns of behaviors, systemic structures, and that all emanates from a mindset, right? And the three areas that we've spent a lot of time talking about in, in Theory U are uh, uh, a crisis in the, connect, uh, the, the disconnect between myself and nature myself and others back to empathy and myself and myself and that is not knowing myself and when i i think about the place that you that to answer your question from before of operating you need to operate from a place of self-love the connection of yourself to yourself that allows you to be insulated from the the problems of how somebody else is behaving in a different way it's not about the someone else. It's about me behaving in the way I want to see the world. And that's really all that matters. Um, and I can only be that on myself. I can't make other people responsible. I can only be that person. I, I mean, whether you're talking Gandhi or talking Martin Luther King, um, those, that really emanates to me. Um, I don't know if that leads you to ETH Commons, which is, I think, a beginning of a picture that says, how do I instantiate blockchain-based systems in a way that internalize externalities? But that's, that's, what, that's I I mean, yeah. what, what I think about it as. Well, I think that you're what, you're what you're
1: saying is definitely connected to both of those questions, which is, yeah, that, and it's that self piece that we were talking about at the beginning where, yeah, you've got you to have the self-love in order to do anything in the world. And you got to know that. Everybody are, and we're all individual actors and you can't make anybody, uh, like in nonviolent communication, there's this thing where it's like, you, you, the other people are responsible for their own feelings. You know, so if you said something and then they, it's like, sorry, homie, You're like that was you. You were the one who felt sad, you know, like I didn't make you sad. Um, so I think that that is a crucial concept. And I think going to your question is, I think that there's a, from a pure mindset perspective, my instinct is to answer the same way that I would answer before, which is this non-accumulation mindset and this abundant mindset is the one that allows us to begin to see a world that is a win-win world to then see a world where we actively don't need to accumulate things for ourselves, but can actively like self tax yourself and essentially go higher up on maslow 's hierarchy of needs it 's a win win because you 're going higher up on maslow 's hierarchy of needs as you 're helping um, uh, other people 's like basic needs through something like the give directly thing or whatever um, so yeah, I think that my instinct is that the the crucial mindset is a non accumulation abundant win win mindset, probably coupled with a little bit of omni-consideration or what have you, where you have that empathy piece where you say, look, even though, essentially the abstract empathy to say whether they're an animal or an AI or a poor person somewhere, that they deserve to move up at Maslow's hierarchy of needs too. Um, Before we go to you, does that answer your question? Okay, sweet, cool.
0: Yeah, I just, I want to say something about that specifically because um, we are the genetic descendants of the win-lose paradigm winners, And so built into our genetics as a result of epigenetics is this win at all costs mentality, which is really the only reason that we're here right now, because if our ancestors hadn't had that, we wouldn't be here. So we are the winners of that. So it's really up to us. And Reese, I see you as such a beautiful example of it. And we really need more models. Mm-hmm. And so like, I hope that as many people as possible can hear you and see you. Because what we need is the models that show us how to do it and show us that we can do it without ending up living in the park, right? Because that's, that's like, it, I know that for me as a woman, that's bred into my system this belief that I'm going to end up a homeless bag lady if I don't engage in these win-lose dynamics, specifically also having to do with masculine-feminine dynamics and you know some other things that we're moving through right now. And so we need both elders who model it for us. And you know obviously, you're not an elder in the age sense, and yet here you are operating in many ways as an elder. And we need to be able to develop our own consciousness to the degree where we can see where the win-lose dynamics are operating within us so that we can consciously make a different choice. Um, there's a new article out just recently by a guy named Mark Manson, um, Grow the F Up, or How to Grow the F Up, and you know it's really laying out that like, As adults we do the right thing because it's the right thing not to get something very few of us have ever been initiated into adulthood hence why we're doing what we're doing at Star House so that we can become adults and um, so yeah thank you for being an adult (laughs) Reese
1: and I just agree with everything so much of what you said there and two two quick points on it is one is so we are definitely the winners of this win lose game, and you can imagine. For me, I grew up as a rich white male um, in America, like whoa, straight, you know, like name all things. I got them. Yeah, exactly. Oh, sweet. they're awesome. Thank you. By the way, yes, thank you. Um, um, and, and so, and, but the thing that's crazy with this, and what you're talking about, Allie, with, um, what you're talking about with this, uh, the fear of becoming the bag lady in the park, I, at the end of last year, almost entered, had a very intense scarcity mindset. So the scarcity mindset is brutal, by the way. And that's what so many people are in, and that's what you're releasing them from when you give them things like a UBI. Um, I, was, I was had like two months of runway, one or two months of runway. But even if it was bad, people will ask me about, this and it's like look I could I am a coder I can code for whatever how many you know 50 bucks 100 bucks an hour if that doesn't work then you know even like I can talk to my parents and they would do whatever you know like they can do whatever they need to so for me and someone like Mark Zuckerberg has talked about this where the ability to take risks is part of um, I essentially feel like I have a UBI now because if you think about the chain it's like at the very back of it I got my parents and above that I could ask anybody in the crypto blockchain systems thinking whatever world, effective altruist were be like, "Oh, you need money right now because you've been like trying your best. Have some money, <laughs> you know." Like so, I so I feel, and that is these, these kind of deep web of trust that I think we're we're starting to create. Um, so yeah, that's I, I agree with you. I guess <laughs> um, should I've we wrap of, up? I have to, need run. to leave. Yeah,
2: but you you can say if we I think we have uh, the room for another fifteen minutes. Okay, well
1: let's all thank Ryan for coming and being. <laughs> And just as a, are there any um final questions I guess is the uh
2: Thank you guys for being our yeah. live audience. It was yeah. way way more fun to <laughs> to have interaction than to to record it in a studio staring at each other's face. <laughs> for sure. <God> forbid. Yeah. <laughs>